Well, almost all of you here or listening know that the last uh, four weeks, my wife Cindy and I have been in New Zealand to visit uh, our son, daughter-in-law, and two children, their two children, who live there. Uh, we were there about, uh, about four weeks, and in general, we had a very good time. But it's also true that while I was there, I had a mental health crisis which was anxiety. I had a pretty serious anxiety attack. I won't go into what, think, what I think caused it. There were a number of reasons, but it's just a little too much information for this public forum. But it actually started already in December, the month before I went away. Struggling with it, and then uh, when we went there, it ebbed and then came back again. And by the start of our last 10 days there, it had become almost unbearable. It was just a huge issue for me. So I decided to seek some support from family and friends, and also, partly on their advice, sought support from the medical community. They had a clinic down in the city in which my son lives that anyone could go into, and it was relatively inexpensive. And so I ended up... um, actually having some medication that helped me get through that last week and particularly the last weekend that we were there. Don't misunderstand me. It didn't ruin my trip or that of the rest of us. We had huge pleasure in being with our family and in that super beautiful country that uh, all of that outweighed the struggle, but it was there and it was real and it was difficult. During those four weeks, the only Bible passage that I read was Psalm 145. It had come across my path because I'm reading a book by the Old Testament prof, who I've mentioned here a number of times. She's an absolute favorite of mine. Any book you can get and read by her is great, at least all the ones I've read so far. Ellen F. Davis. And she has a little sermon, a little short sermon on this psalm, and that kicked me off into this psalm. So during those weeks, and especially during those last 10 days, I focused on this psalm and read it over and over and over again in, 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 in its whole version, but also in particular verses. So I've decided to share that psalm with you this morning just because it's uh, rooted relatively deep me, deeply in me, and I thought it might be worth, worth it to share it with you. With this one caveat... It was not in New Zealand my experience, and in general it's not my experience. And I don't actually believe it always, sometimes it does, but always happens this way, that if you read, study, and meditate on the Bible and pray enough, your problems will get solved. That's not at all what I'm suggesting. And in this case, they didn't go away. I needed other help. But this psalm provided a perspective, a window through which to view my circumstances. And I found that orienting kept my feet a bit on the ground and therefore helpful. It was one of the tools that I had for dealing with this crisis, along with all the other tools that were offered to me and of which I took advantage So what I'd like to do is read uh, Psalm 145 with you. It's 21 verses. 
If you have an actual physical Bible, it doesn't say it on the screen, but if you actually have a physical Bible, you will notice right on top before verse 1, it says something like a song of praise. The word praise is in there. That word praise that you see there is the Hebrew word for psalm. So that's singular. This is a psalm in the book of Psalms, the same word, only plural. And this is the only psalm that has this heading. Your other, other psalms have a song of David or a maskil or something else. This is the only psalm in the whole Psalter that has this heading, a psalm of praise, a, 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 a song of psalm, a song of praise, something like that. So I will read, I extol you, my God and King, and bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and praise your name forever and ever. Great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. His greatness is unsearchable. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds and I will declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness and shall sing aloud of your righteousness. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. All your works shall give thanks to you, O Lord, and all your saints shall bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and tell of your power to make known to the children of man your mighty deeds and the glorious splendor of your kingdom. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due season. You open your hand. You satisfy the desire of every living thing. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his works. The Lord is near to all who call on him, to all who call on him in truth. He fulfills the desire of those who fear him. He also hears their cry and saves them. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. My mouth will speak the praise of the Lord, and let all flesh bless his holy name forever and ever. We're obviously this morning a bit limited in time, so I can't say everything uh, that I'd like to say about this psalm, so I'm obviously just picking a couple, some things out. But I'd like to, us to think about two themes this morning. What is, one is just this idea of praise. This is a psalm full of praise. So how does praise help us in difficult circumstances, whatever they, they might be? And then the second one is, and this was, this was one that uh, really grabbed my attention, there's this sense of mission in here. There's this sense of calling. There's there's a sense of being called to to go somewhere and do something. We'll get to that at the end. But those are the two things I'd like to I'd like to focus on this morning. 
So just starting with the praise, and I'm just going to pick a few themes out of this psalm again. I just don't have time to touch everything. But the psalm starts with, I will extol or I will exalt you, my God and King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. And Ellen Davis has this to say about uh, the place of praise. The practice of blessing God through praise is for the is for the psalmist, and I found this fascinating, a survival instinct. When facing deadly enemies, praising God is not a leisure time activity, and I think she might also say not a Sunday morning 1030 activity only, but it's a de- declaration of God's sovereignty in times of imminent danger. Praise is a declaration of God's sovereignty in times of imminent danger. And then she goes on, From ancient times and still today, Orthodox Jews recite Psalm 145 three times each day, fulfilling the words of the psalm itself, Every day I will bless you. Its daily recitation points to Israel's understanding that that true praise is more than saying thanks when God does something nice for you. You see the, the shift in paradigm that she's making here? We tend to think God does something nice, so I praise him. She's saying, no, praise is vocation in a situation of crisis and danger. Praise is something like a lifestyle. It's a vocation. I believe it is exactly the vocation to praise that has given Israel's faith the power to endure through more than 3,000 years, longer than any other faith in the history of the world, and many of them years of suffering. As you know, the book of Psalms is just at the root of of Israel's life, their daily life and their, their worship life. There's no nation, no group of people, uh, no ethnic group in the world that has suffered more than the Jewish people have. And yet every three times a day, every day, praise. A declaration of God's sovereignty in times of imminent danger. So how does Psalm 145 fill in this concept of praise? Why are we praising? What are we praising God for? And again, I'm just going to pick a few things out from the psalm, and we'll project the verses here. First, from the verses 8 and 9. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. When you're in that crisis, To hear these words, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. There's no punishment here. There's no angry father. There's a loving, merciful, gracious father in heaven. And then it goes on. The Lord is good to all, and his mercy is over all that he has made. And again, for those of you counting the alls in the Bible, here's a couple more of them. 
This is what struck me. Nothing is excluded here. I'm not excluded. My family's not excluded. My friends aren't excluded. My acquaintances aren't excluded. My community's not excluded. My state's not excluded. My nation's not excluded. My world's not excluded. Creation's not excluded. All of creation, everything that he has made. And again, if there's any place where you run with your nose right up against that creation, it's New Zealand where they say all the plants and trees are on steroids. All that he has made experiences his goodness and his mercy. And again, I want to say that, that just zooming in on that does not take the circumstance away. But it provides a perspective, a lens, a foundation. And perhaps even, dare you wish, a destination. And to let those words, the Lord is good to all he has made, just drip around who you are, where you are, what you're experiencing at every level. And then from verse 13, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom and your dominion endures throughout all generations. The Lord is faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. And here's what Davis says about these verses. Here the psalmist flies in the face of what we would call the facts, the facts of real politique. Think about it. A people noteworthy chiefly for their bad political uh, luck proclaim the absolute dominion of their God over all times and circumstances. This is an extraordinary thing. But speaking either mass delusion or else an unusually deep understanding of the nature of reality, the kind of fresh perception that comes to us only when God speaks. This idea that, that God's kingdom endures forever is either, as Davis says, mass delusion, or there's some truth in it. And God is king, and God is sovereign, and his dominion endures throughout all generations. He's faithful in all his words and kind in all his works. Again, does that take the crisis away? Not necessarily. Most likely not. But it's this foundation. It's this lens. It's this destination. And then from verses 14 to 16. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The Lord upholds all who are falling and raises up all who are bowed down. The eyes of all 
look to you. And you give them their food in due season, looking up, open hands, receiving the food in due season. You open your hand, our hands are open, you open your hand, and you satisfy the desire of every single, of every living thing. If you go to some other um, translations of the Bible, uh, here in this version it's singular, but other translations for some reason make it plural, which I don't understand because in the Hebrew it's singular. You satisfy the desire like singular. I don't want to make too much of the singular, but I find it interesting that it's singular because we all, of course, if we know anything about ourselves or other people, we have all kinds of desires. What's this one thing? Well, what I thought about is actually one of my favorite verses in the whole Bible from Psalm 27, where, where David says, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. One thing I have asked, says David. And that's what I'm going to go for. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord to gaze upon his beauty and to inquire in his temple. Where's the house of the Lord? Well, it's in me. It's in you. It's in family. It's in friends. It's in community. It's in the nature. It's all over the place. Where are you going to see him? Where are you going to find him? This is about the presence of God. This is about walking with him through the valley of the shadow of death. And again, it's not necessarily that the trouble stops. But it's that in that deepest, darkest moment of the night at 4 a.m. when you're awake and don't know how you're going to make it through the next day. Is he there? And this is what the incarnation of Jesus was all about. God coming down and walking through life, walking through all the circumstances of life. And he didn't heal everybody. And he brought no visible justice. He didn't restore the world like everyone, especially the Jewish people, were expecting him to do. And at the end of his life, when he prayed, Father, I would rather not go through this suffering on the cross Father said, well, sorry, but you have to do it. But in all of that, Jesus was with God. And Jesus is with us. And so we're never going through whatever crisis it is by ourselves. And the one thing I want more than anything else is to gaze upon his beauty to see him in his tabernacle, in his temple. To know that he is there. And that he knows intimately everything that I and we are struggling with.
And then verse 20. The Lord preserves all who love him, but all the wicked he will destroy. And Ellen Davis and other writers note that, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the term lectionary, but in uh, Roman Catholic and Anglican and Episcopal churches, the more liturgical churches around the world, they follow lectionary readings every week. The, the, the readings and the sermon topics are all given to them. And in general, the lectionaries tend to cut this verse out, which is why I'm choosing to pay attention to it, because it's a tough one in this context. Davis says this about this verse. The psalmist always sang God's praise with the situation in mind. They knew that when you are facing radical evil, everything depends on being able to say with certainty that God's kingship is over all worlds, that finally no evil, no evil person will be able to endure before God's triumphant goodness. Okay? God's kingship is over all worlds. No evil, no evil person will be able to endure before God's triumphant goodness. And then she goes on. Praise is not a leisure time activity for the psalmist. It is a survival instinct, an instinct for the goodness of God, that one desire, which wells up even, no, especially before overwhelming evil find it just magical that she's placing this idea of praise in the context of overwhelming evil. Praise of God is the survival instinct that moves us not to violence against those who threaten us, but to confidence in the one who is powerful to save us. It moves us not to violence. When we read this verse, and I think the church has read it through the years, as they've read much of the scriptures, read this verse and say, yes, they're going to get theirs. My enemies are going to get theirs. And I don't think that's what the psalm is saying. It's what the words are. When you look at Jesus on the cross, in the face of the, of, of, of the worst evil that's ever been committed in the whole history of the world. Jesus didn't say, they're going to get theirs. Right? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And if you, when reading this verse, are tempted to think of literal, physical, or spiritual destruction with a flash of violence included... Yeah, that's what we've been trained to do. Revelation, he's going to blow them out of the water. Add to that image the thought of how God destroyed one of his greatest enemies, Saul the Pharisee. Not by ridding the world of him, but by turning him into one of God's greatest friends and ambassadors. Just think about that for a while. And one more thing. It says in this verse, the Lord preserves all who love him. And right away our minds say, okay, that's it. 
those of us that love him, and then there's all those that don't, and their fate is... But that leads us into a problem because we've already read the verse that says God is good, not to those who love it, but to all. So how do you put those two together? For the last 25 years, when I read the scriptures and I find these kind of things, I almost always find that both these concepts are relatively close together in a passage. I could, you can ask me later over lunch. I can give you examples. There's this, there's this, the Lord is good to all, but he pays attention to those who love him. They're always in juxtaposition. They're always in tension with each other. And usually in our theology, in Western theology, evangelical theology, we focus on the particular and ignore the universal. That's what we tend to do. What I think we should do is hold both intention. The fact that God is good to all does not take anything away from the call on me and the call on us to fear him or the blessing that it gives in life to fear him or the destruction that happens if we don't fear him. Both are true. It's just a short little aside away maybe to look at these kind of passages. So this idea of praise, praise in the midst of danger, praise in the, in the sight of our enemies, And we confess, the Lord is good to all. His mercy is over all he has made. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. He satisfies the desire of everything, and he will destroy all evil. And think of what he did to Saul. And again, does that take away your terribly difficult circumstances? Probably not. But it's a foundation. It's a lens, and perhaps a destination. I don't know what situation you're in. It may be extremely, excruciatingly difficult. Probably every human being walking around is in, for that person, extremely difficult, excruciating circumstances. I offer you Psalm 145 this kind of praise as a way to help you deal with what has come across your path. But as there is so often in the scriptures, there is always a call to mission. Verses 4 to 7. One generation shall commend your works to another. Now, I was going to New Zealand to visit my children, child, and my grandchildren. So this is like perfect, right? Not all of us have generations after us. A lot of us do, but not all of us. So if you don't have generations, biological generations that are after you, think of, think of those, those, coming, those growing up with whom you're in contact, those, those over whom you have influence. It doesn't just have to be biological family.
And if praise is this survival thing in the middle of excruciating circumstances, then in the middle of that is this call to commend God's goodness to the next generation. And all of the verbs that are in these two verses are different Hebrew words. They're not all translated in English differently, but they're all in Hebrew different words. Listen to them. One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works I will meditate. So already we've had commend, declare, meditate. When we look at the wondrous works of God, especially the work that he's done in Jesus, we commend, declare, we meditate. They shall speak of the might of your awesome deeds. Put words on your lips. Declare your greatness. They shall pour forth the fame of your abundant goodness. And sing aloud of your righteousness. And again, every time in the scriptures you see the word righteousness, think also of justice. Commend, declare, meditate, speak, declare, pour forth the fame, sing aloud. In my situation, to go to New Zealand or to be in New Zealand with my family who I hadn't seen in four years. What's my mission? How can I commend? How can I declare? How can I meditate? How can I speak? How can I pour forth the fame of? How can I sing aloud of? And I found it helpful and comforting and challenging to think I'm, I'm, I'm not just here for a for a nice visit. I'm on a mission to this next generation, to these four people that are my family. And even out of the crucible of medicated anxiety, what do I have to say? What do I have to offer? What do I have to give? How can I tell of? And I believe sometimes that doesn't mean much more than that you put words to what's going on inside instead of keeping it hidden. You talk about it. You say, son, this is what's happening. This is what's going on. Instead of just... Because once... Once that door goes open, once that lid comes off the boiling kettle, then there's space for the goodness of God to work and to do its thing. So that's what I want to give you today, this morning. In whatever crucible, whatever crisis you're in, David, the psalmist, calls us to praise. 
not as a side activity that we do once a week on Sunday morning, but as a way to deal with imminent, deadly danger. And he calls us to go on a mission to pass on to those around us in every way we can the goodness of God, which is over all that he has made, including each one of you and each one of us, regardless of the circumstances. Amen.